Some politicians are keen to talk up global Britain. Others like to boast the UK is a world leader in well, just about everything. For those with a glass half empty outlook, this country is in non-stop decline. But their glass half full counterparts are quick to accuse these doomsters of talking down Britain. So what's the true story about Britain's place in the world? Are we keeping up with our friends and staying ahead of our rivals? Is the special relationship still all that special? And what is the real impact of Brexit on the UK's standing in the world? We've brought together the heads of three of the UK's leading think tanks to offer deep thinking on the issues by the experts beyond the 24-hour news cycle. I'm Hannah White, Director of the Institute for Government. I'm Paul Johnson, Director of the Institute for Fiscal Studies. And I'm Arnon Menon, Director of UK in a Changing Europe. Welcome to The Expert Factor. So, Paul, let's kick off with you. One of the most obvious ways, I think, to measure how the UK is doing in global terms is by comparing the performance of its economy against those that of other countries. So, in terms of economic growth, how is the UK faring? Uh, well, I'm definitely more of a glass half empty uh, person yeah. on that one. Uh, I'm afraid, as I think would anyone be who looked at the uh, looked at the figures, um, we've been doing really quite poorly. If you look at uh, national income, particularly if you look at national income per person, um, certainly over the last six or seven years, but actually over the last um, ten or twelve years to some extent. If you look at the period uh, since the beginning of COVID, we're only just getting back to the point where our economy is as big as it was at the end of 2019, and we're behind all of the other G7, the biggest economies. If you look at our um, income per head, our earnings per person, um, we've lagged behind um, uh, over, over quite a long time, uh, again, certainly since 2010, and particularly since 2016, uh, other countries. And if you look at the current um, problems with inflation and cost of living, Inflation in the UK is much more persistent than it was uh, than it has been in the US, and it's higher and looks like it's going to be higher for longer than is the case in the eurozone. Inward investment in the UK uh, has, uh, has has been doing quite badly over recent years as well, and we're falling down the uh, economic pecking order in terms of uh, national income per head or in terms of our living standards. So it's not a cheerful outlook, I'm afraid. And to go back to what you were saying about COVID and the response post-COVID, something that politicians seem to say, government politicians seem to say regularly, is that we've we've recovered faster than other economies. But is that just because we went to a lower point in the during the during the pandemic? Well, I think the only sensible comparison to make is with the moment just before the pandemic, rather than with wherever we ended up during the pandemic. And on that comparison, we we don't look terribly good by comparison with other countries. And it's worth saying actually that's maybe despite, maybe because we had a bigger economic response to COVID than almost any other country. I think Canada may be the only country that spent more in response to COVID than we did. So it's not, if, if we are doing badly, it's not because we did too little during COVID. It may be that some of the inflation we have at the moment is down to the very large amounts of money both the Bank of England and the government threw at the economy during COVID and possibly uh, associated with the relative generosity of our furlough scheme and, uh, and other things. So you certainly can't accuse the government of having been asleep at the wheel during COVID. They did an enormous amount. But as we come out of that, uh, I'm afraid we have uh, recovered worse uh, than most other countries. And Anand, thinking about the B word, which we mm-hmm. can't stay away from for long. And obviously, UK and Changing Europe has lots of experts who um, have, have thought a lot about the impact that, that Brexit 
was going to have and, yeah. and what's now playing out. So what's the consensus, um, would you say, in terms of, of views of, of what effect Brexit has had on the economy? I mean, the very clear consensus amongst economists is that Brexit is having and will continue to have a negative impact on the UK economy. And you see that in terms of trade figures. Uh, and what, what Paul was saying was interesting, isn't it? Because I think one of the issues we face is that the things we're, we're struggling with are not just Brexit issues. Some of these are far longer term. I mean, the, the fact of sort of stagnation in uh, real wage levels since about 2010 is obviously not a Brexit thing. But So we're dealing with a decade of rather poor performance. The other thing we're saying when it comes to the, the international is, in a sense, we could hardly have picked a worse moment to be doing Brexit. I mean, if you think about the ideal scenario in global terms for a country leaving the European Union, you'd have a flourishing world trade organization, you'd have globalization on steroids, you'd have countries looking to strike trade deals. And we have Brexited into a world where the major economies are turning in, where we're talking about reshoring, where the WTO is hardly working, where the European Union and the United States are concentrating on stimulating domestic economies. And you hear European Commission officials say things like, we need to develop indigenous electric vehicle capacity uh, before the Brits do. So um, that is actually a, an awful international environment in which to be entering on this kind of project, which implied a sort of buccaneering, free trading, outward looking UK. So that seems like sort of bad luck. Paul, does that, could you therefore argue that the negative impact we're seeing on the economy is a short term thing, actually, if the global circumstances change? And I think people before Brexit, even sort of some of the people who were very pro-Brexit said there will be a short-term negative impact and a sort of mm -hmm. period of uncertainty and so on. Is that something that we're going to pull through in your view and, and, and there were sunlit uplands beyond or do you think this looks like a more long-term um, issue? It's probably long-term. I mean, the, we, we have simply made it more expensive to work with, to trade with our biggest, nearest and richest trading partner. And uh, that's already played out, as Anand said, in terms of lower lower levels of trade with the EU, with less uh, in the way of investment than we might um, otherwise have seen. And an economy which is probably, it's very hard to estimate this, three or 4% smaller than it otherwise would have been. And I think most likely um, those uh, those impacts will either remain the same or get bigger over time, rather than rather than reduce um, over over time. As you know, economies are dynamic, and lack of growth at one moment can create lack of growth in another. And uh, unless people see very good reasons for investing. Um, in the UK relative to the European Union, then that relative poor growth, I'd have thought, is more likely to continue rather than to end and uh, end and catch up. And tell us about the big trade deals that um, we've, we've put lots of store by in terms of, of, of new opportunities for the UK to sign those with, with other countries. Are they going to make a big difference? Economically, no. And as anyone who's on Twitter will know, the government's own estimates for these deals is paltry compared to what, what economists are estimating as the uh, impact of Brexit. And it's worth saying, it is just bananas for Brexit supporters to talk about the benefits of removing restrictions on trade with India, Japan, Australia, New Zealand, without talking about the impact of imposing restrictions on trade with our nearest and largest trading partner. I mean, a little bit of consistency about this argument would be good. This isn't to say that those trade deals don't have a purpose. Uh, they'll make some economic impact. There are some interesting uh, aspects of the Japan deal about digital trade, for instance, which are quite original. And of course, 
these things fit into a broader foreign policy framework. I don't think, I mean, one of the things that happened under Liz Truss was actually trade policy and foreign policy became quite aligned. So while negotiating with New Zealand and Australia over trade, we were also talking to the Australians about AUKUS. And so not all of this is quantifiable simply in terms of trade or economics. There's a broader thing as well. And I think those foreign policy initiatives are potentially quite important, actually, perhaps even in economic terms, because of the some of the joint weapons stuff we're doing with the US and Australia, but certainly in geostrategic terms, which, of course, are far harder to put numbers on. But let's move on now to that broader foreign policy context. What difference would you say, Anand, being outside the EU has made to the UK's reputation and to how the UK sees itself? When you talk to uh, diplomats from other countries, I think it's fair to say that all of them are saying, what have you done? You've actually made, you've taken a decision that's made you poorer. But I think actually more damaging in a sense than Brexit has been the sheer instability uh, that we've displayed over the last five or six years. That, you know, you can talk to uh, foreign journalists or foreign diplomats and they'll say, my God, Britain used to be a place you could rely on for being reassuringly boring and pragmatic and steady. And now all of a sudden, we don't know what the hell's going on, what's going to change all of a sudden. It's impossible to plan even short to medium term at the moment because things are so unstable. And I think that has had a massive impact. And I think Paul can talk to the investment, but I'd assume that that has an impact on people's proclivity to invest here if they're just not certain what's going to happen around the world. Well, we know that uncertainty is a really big, um, uh, a really big reason for companies not to invest in a particular uh, country. There's lots of economic research that shows that. And clearly, we've had a lot of that over the last few years. It's almost it's really hard to disentangle the Brexit effect from the instability effect because yeah. clearly the sort of all of the politics around Brexit are associated with all the political instability that we've had since. And actually, we may have had a pile of political instability if the um, referendum gone fifty two forty eight the other way because I don't think the Brexiteers would have um, you know kept quiet after mm-hmm. after that. So um, there are those effects. We've clearly had the, uh, you know, the, the 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 extraordinary period of the trusts. 44 days of um, government, which uh, which, which did you know, damage to the reputation for stability that you're um, talking about. Um, and we've also had a period when it's been very hard for governments to make any consistent policy at all. Yeah. Now, there are also elements of inconsistency here which are not necessarily down to Brexit. I mean, we've had corporation tax rates, you know, government spent billions cutting them in the 2010s and is now taking them all the way back up to where, where they were. Um, corporation tax policy now, which is supposedly set for three years because of the sort of absurd response to the very particular fiscal rules the Chancellor's keeping, so we don't really know what's happening with corporation tax. That's not really to do with Brexit, that's just to do with the standard economic uh, political sort of um, chaos that we see. It's uh, worth reminding ourselves, really, with all due respect to the Lib Dems, that this is happening with the same Absolutely, that absolutely, it, it really is, and um, and and of course the opposition has um, changed its policies. It appears you know, very dramatically over this period, as well. I mean, I suppose you know, from an outsider and uh, sort of point of view, it does appear that we're getting back to something like political normality at the moment. We appear to have sort of two parties arguing about the sorts of things parties normally argue about, yeah. um, uh, and, and 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 my guess is that the. The next year's election will look a bit more like the 2015 election than the 2017 or the 2019 election. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, it's all about competence now, which I suspect is partly because Keir Starmer doesn't want to sound ideological because he wants to play safe. And the Conservatives can't sound ideological because they don't quite know which ideology they're <laughs> at the moment. Uh, 
so yeah, I think I, I wouldn't I wouldn't read too much into that about politics going back to normal because I still think there's a there's a there's a febrile situation brewing inside the Conservative mm. Party because there's a battle for the soul of that party yet to come. Whether that happens in government or in opposition, we'll see. And I think there's also for the Labour Party a big question if they get into government of of, of what they then become in government, as you say, whether there's uh, you know, a strategy for winning the election and yep. then what the strategy is af- after the election. But moving back away from domestic, the domestic, where we're all uh, very interested, uh, to the to the global stage, Paul, how do you think Brexit and recent political instability, let's sort of put those together, has affected our relationships with really big international countries like uh, the US and China? If you're if you're looking at the UK as a US or Chinese company, um, we look less attractive because we're no longer the obvious route into the European Union. Um, the the role of London as an international financial centre um, hopefully is reasonably secure, but it's less secure perhaps than it uh, than it would have been outside of Brexit, and that reduces our standing with those uh, with those countries. And uh, the famous question the American uh, president asked: Who do I who, who do I who do I ring up if I want to get someone in charge of Europe? Well, it's certainly not anyone in the UK. Um, uh, anyone in the UK anymore. Uh, and, and of course, we have seen, it is true in terms of trade deals, we uh, you had that comment that President Obama made in 2016 about the UK being at the back of the line or the back of the queue, depending on uh, which version you you, you wish. Um, and that's clearly turned out to be absolutely true. I mean, I think even the even the deep biggest believers in this now acknowledge that um, we're not going to get a trade deal with the US anytime soon. Um, if ever, so uh, the we, we have withdrawn ourselves from you know, from a powerful block and left uh, uh, very much our own um, you know, left our own devices, and there's no pretending that the UK alone is as important to either the US or China as the European Union as a whole. And even the EU is struggling yeah. to define that role. I agree absolutely with Paul. It's interesting, isn't it, that you know one of the things our government keeps claiming we're world leaders in this sort of AI and new technology. And, but of course, the US and the EU have their technology council where they meet regularly and talk about these things as blocks. And it's hard not to think that we're going to lose out by not being around the table. And talking to sort of foreign office officials, there's a slight sense of frustration now that the Americans are talking to the Europeans. So we see how it is. Well, yeah, obviously, because it's a <laughs> continental-sized economy and they want to... I think the exception, and we'll, we might come back on to things like Ukraine, is with foreign security policy, where we're still seen as a pretty good partner, not least because of how we reacted to Ukraine. But with China, of course, geopolitics has happened. With or without Brexit, our relationship with China would have shifted pretty dramatically from the Cameron Osborne era, simply because of what China has been doing, whether it's in Hong Kong or with the Uyghurs, and how political opinion in the United Kingdom has changed very, very quickly indeed. With regard to, you know, you have that China research group in the, in the Conservative Party now, which is exerting a lot of influence. And I think our economic relationship with China would have changed quite quickly with or without Brexit because of those geopolitical factors. And where those end up is a very interesting question. Uh, and how we balance the need to trade with the need to take a firm stance on some of these issues of principle. Uh, I don't think we've quite figured that out yet, but that's that's going to be a sort of uh, something that keeps a moving picture, if you like. 
And those are questions, of course, for, for politicians, and it'd be interesting to see where, where, where Labour comes out on some of those. But also, of course, for the FCDO, we were talking just before we started recording about where we, we feel the merger between DFID and the development department and the, in the FCO, um, had got to. Yeah. What's your impression of that? The IFG are asking me this. I think it's <laughs> got to be some kind of trick question. So I think we should leave it to you to answer on the sort of, on the kind of what's happening within the civil service. My, not my sense is that people in the foreign office, unlike say 18 months ago, where everyone was talking about, God, this is a pain, this merger is not working very well and it's problematic. You hear far less of that. I don't know whether that's resignation or the fact that actually this is now worked its way through. And we have got some interesting conversations to have in this country, not least in the context of the debate about immigration, about whether we see development aid, stabilisation money as part of the answer to the migration problem. Well, that's a very, very big issue for the whole of Europe over the next few decades, but it's a debate we're going to have to have. Yeah, I mean, I think from the IFG's point of view, and we've been sort of tracking the the merger with, with interest, things do seem to have got to a more uh, more stable picture, I think the lasting legacy is is interesting because Diffid was such a strong brand yeah. for, for the UK, and now we've explicitly moved into a, a, a phase where the you know the whole purpose of having a separate development department, which was to separate out foreign policy and, and development, we have explicitly moved back into wanting to align um, economic policy, foreign policy, and development aid being seen as a tool as, as part of that, the other end of the spectrum, um, and that is. Um, you know, a perfectly legitimate approach, but very different yeah. to when we had, um, uh, this, this international reputation, uh, for developing policy and practice around, around development. Hmm. The other thing we're going to have to learn to do in the Foreign Office is deal with Europe. Because, of course, you know, one of the paradoxes of Brexit is we're probably going to have to throw more resources into the European network because we're not in the meeting. So it's just harder work to figure out what's going on to build those relationships. And, you know, Brexit or no Brexit, they are our allies and geographical neighbours, and we'll need to know what they're thinking. We'll need to work with them, and actually, that's going to require more rather than less effort from the Foreign Office. I think that's right, and I think there was sort of staffing up of European capitals by yeah. the Foreign Office during the Brexit process. Um, but of course, all these questions we're discussing about global Britain, what it looks like, where we're going to place our emphasis, how we're going to try to leverage our comparative advantage, will have to be reflected in and iterated by the Foreign Office in terms of how they distribute their, their staff internationally. Yeah. Um, and that's going to be quite an uh, interesting um, thing to, to track. So I've mentioned the, the the buzzword there, the sort of global Britain uh, buzzword. Is that is that still a thing? I mean, I don't think I ever got a, um, a really a handle on on what the government meant by it. But is it is that still the policy? And, and what do you think it means? I mean, it predates Brexit. I remember Cameron using the phrase. So it's been around for a while. And I don't think, to be honest, under James Cleverley, it's being used. I think I'm right in saying you hardly hear it now from the Foreign Office. But it was quite clear, to me at least at the time, what it was, was from, from, from the Brexiter perspective, Global Britain was a handy slogan to underline the fact that just because we're leaving the European Union doesn't mean we were turning our backs on the world as a whole. In fact, for many Brexiters, uh, and we can dispute whether there was any basis to this, we were leaving the European Union in order to be more active on the global stage. And one of the things I will say about global Britain is since 2016, we have been a lot more active on the global stage than we had been. I mean, essentially, since the Syria vote, 
in 2013, we didn't really have a foreign policy for those three years because, you know, the Prime Minister's fingers had been burnt. Uh, there was very little in the way of engagement with the big geopolitical issues. Everything was economic. The relationship with China was de was defined slowly, solely in terms of the golden age in economics. And all of a sudden with 2016, and because there was a political premium on showing post-referendum that we were still active on the world stage, we have been. Uh, there's been a, a, a significant uptick in the activism of British diplomacy. I mean, you try and keep track of where James Cleverly is from one day to the other. I mean, he's all over the place. But, you know, I've talked about AUKUS. I've talked, you know, we've had the integrated review. We've had the, had the Indo-Pacific tilt. We can have, maybe do another episode on this. We can have a discussion about what this all amounts to. But it's certainly been energetic and activist. And I think that has been key to some of the Brexiters to show that, you know, the UK hasn't disappeared. The UK is just is actually being more active than before. So going back to that previous question there about um, DFID and the uh, yeah. rolling into the Foreign Office, the reduction in the amount of foreign mm -hmm. aid and the and, and the move really towards a more economic focus that you were talking about yeah. was where we were with China. To what extent is that part of the strategy you're describing, or and to what extent does that is is that actually kind of almost contrary to that overall stance? It's contrary in the sense that we'd have greater influence if we spent more on development aid. Uh, so in that sense, there's a, there's a tension there. But the reality of money uh, is biting. And one of the interesting debates about this is there's been a lot of debate over the last couple of years about how high defence spending should be. Uh, and one of the things that I learned from your book, there's a little plug for you, Paul. Oh, well done. Is, um, <laughs> one of the reasons <laughs> why available on good bookshops. <laughs> and it's yellow. Very easy to spot in your bookshop. With a rabbit. Is that actually, you know, de def defence spending has decreased massively since the 50s. And that has allowed us to spend on all sorts of other things. Now, all of a sudden, in the wake of Ukraine, there's a debate about whether defence spending should go up to 3%. I can confidently predict it won't. Uh, but again, we need to, well, as the phrase goes, cut our cloth. We're having this debate about being more activist, more present. We want to be global Britain. It's going to cost money. Uh, we're going to need the foreign, the, the, the sort of FCDO resources. But if we're going to do this in security terms, we're going to need the military resources as well. And I'm just not sure we can, given the numerous other economic challenges that we face, I just don't see this being a priority, to be honest. So just to sort of pick up on that, Paul, in terms of the defence budget, as as Anand says, I mean, Liz Truss, I think, was promising uh, to, over a period of time, to, to get up to 3%, was it? Um, we've not heard much about that since. Do you agree with uh, Anand's scepticism that we'll be uh, raising the defence budget anytime soon? Yeah, our defence budget is now near enough bang on 2% of national income, which is the NATO target. But which I think not many other countries actually Very hit. few other countries yeah. actually actually manage. I mean, the US obviously spends vastly more than, mm. I mean, the whole of the European Union put to get plus the UK um, put together, which is one of the reasons I think they, they get a bit fed up with us because they're doing, you know, in terms of supporting Ukraine, the large majority of that is coming from the US, despite the fact the European Union plus the UK is as big an economy, pretty much, yeah. as the US. And so you, you can sort of understand the irritation um, over the other side of the Atlantic. Um, and it, 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 Anna's absolutely right. I mean, one of the big 
changes over the last 50 years has been a big reduction in our defence budget. And as our defence budget has gone down, so we've had money made available for health and pensions and all those other things. Well, it seems pretty unlikely the defence budget is going to go down any further. I mean, 2% of national income, I, I don't think we're going to go below. And as we've heard, there are um, there are pressures for it to rise. I mean, I, I don't think there's any chance it will go to 3% of national income, and that would be another £25 billion pounds or so um, going on defence as opposed to health or social care or education, all the other things that um, actually the electorate, for good reasons, are quite keen um, on. Uh, but I think one of the challenges facing the, the, the next period of government is, I think probably defence budget's more likely to go up a little bit than down a little bit, and actually defence budget going up a little bit is, is new, and it's going to create problems for all the other bits of government. I mean, it's worth saying just on that burden-sharing point between the US and Europe that, you know, Trump had a point. He wasn't making it up. We might not like his style, the way he went about it, but the fact is he was actually putting into words what many people in the United States have thought, which is, hang on a sec, why are we paying for them? Uh, they, you know, they've got pretty good economies, and as Paul says, combined, their economy is pretty much the same as ours, and why are we paying disproportionately for the defence of Europe? Uh, and I don't think, you know, Biden's obviously very, very different to Trump, but I don't, I think that the debate has changed fundamentally in nature in the United States. And whether or not Trump comes back, I think the United States is going to be far less patient about this, uh, what they see as this sort of undue burden that falls on them going forward. That's really interesting. And uh, of course, we've got the US election coming up. Where do you feel, uh, Anna, the, the special relationship is at at the moment? I'd like you to be. I think Ukraine has helped. Uh, I think there is a, a wide and accurate perception that actually under Boris Johnson in particular, we played a leading role in ratcheting up Western support, in making a clear commitment to Ukraine. And I think uh, in Washington that was appreciated. We can't live off that forever. I think they're going to be looking for practical commitments on things like reconstruction, post-war. Uh, and there's no doubt about it that, you know, since experience in Afghanistan and Iraq, there are those in the American security apparatus who think the UK isn't what it used to be. They're not, they don't have the military heft that we used to be able to rely on. There are still areas, whether it's nuclear, whether it's intelligence, where we work together very, very closely. Uh, but I think the relationship has changed. And, you know, to bring Brexit in again, one of the reasons why the relationship has changed is a lot of the strategic conversations for which we'd have been in the room beforehand are now carried out with the European Union. Uh, and we're simply not there. And we don't know what goes on. Paul, well, let's um, look to the future in another way. What do you think will change in terms of foreign policy uh, if Labour do win the election? Well, I think genuinely we don't know the answer to that at the moment. I mean, there are big questions for the Labour Party about how they engage with Europe, which mm -hmm. I'm sure Anand will know more about than I do, but the, they've clearly signalled that they want to sort of uh, at least a closer and more constructive uh, relationship with the European Union. Now, how far they'll push that in terms of um, easing trade relationships all the way to rejoining the single market or the customs union, which I'd be very surprised if we get to, certainly in um, in a first term. Uh, I think it's for, it, it is still for them to uh, it's still for them to uh, to spell out um, more broadly. Uh, again, I think we're really waiting uh, for um, some more uh, some more clarity. I mean, what one what, the sorts of things that Rachel Reeves is saying at the moment, at the least, suggest she 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 wants to learn things. 
things from what's happening um, in the US. There's signs of a more active industrial strategy. There's signs of wanting to have a government activism in, in, in driving trade and investment, though to be fair, the current government would say that they're trying um, to do that uh, at the moment. Um, but the truth is, uh, I don't know the answer to that question. And there are questions of scale, aren't there? I mean, if the US government decides to deploy, deploy its fiscal firepower, uh, it's a lot more effective than... If yeah, the and I think it's very, it's, it's very dangerous. I mean, I should have come on to say, I think it's very dangerous to try and learn lessons from US economic policy yeah. because the US is an entirely different economy with entirely different capacities yeah. to spend vast amounts of money, to um, uh, to be protectionist, to um, take, take risks with its public finances and so on, in a way that a still significant, but much, much smaller economy than mm -hmm. the UK, uh, which doesn't have the, 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 the global currency. Um, we, we can't look to the US and say, let's do the same. Yeah. So I do hope that any politicians looking at this understand that there are you know, serious limits to what we can learn. And whoever wins the next election, apart from the City of London, which seems the obvious one, what would you say are the USPs that the, the UK economy has where politicians ought to be focusing their thinking if we can't act like a big economy, we're not a, the biggest sort of economy like the US, we don't have those options, where should we be specialising and focusing? Well, I don't think we should forget the City of London. I mean, more, more than, I mean, I'm, I'm not an expert in finance, but I speak to quite a lot of people in the city. More than at any time I can remember, actually, people are worried. And it's not, I think, specifically a Brexit worry. It's, um, though there is some of that, there, there are concerns expressed about um, uh, companies uh, listing in the US rather than deciding to list in London. There are concerns expressed about the impact of what is now UK domestic regulatory policy on um, on activity uh, in the city. Now, it's very hard as an outsider to know to what extent that is special pleading and to what extent that is real, but for sure, the Treasury and the Shadow Treasury team will have heard this in spades, and um, they need to, I think, very carefully analyse what's real there and what isn't. And if there is stuff that's real there, then they probably need to respond to it. I mean, beyond that, beyond financial services um, and the city, um, we, we'd have genuine um, uh, we're world-leading um, uh, companies in pharma and biotech um, and some of those sorts of issues. I can't remember what it was. Some very high fraction of the world's... Um, uh, I'll get the words wrong here, but the working out what kind of COVID bug um, <laughs> and how it was... How COVID was changing over time. A lot of that happened in, in the UK, in Cambridge, because we have world-leading uh, capacity there. Um, our higher education sector Thank is, apart from UK and changing <laughs> Europe, our higher, education, our higher education sector is a huge um, is a huge export um, earner. It's uh, it's got a very high reputation um, internationally. It's one of the things, of course, which potentially is very um, open to disruption if, for example, our relationship with China yep. gets a lot worse because yep. a lot of universities are quite dependent on, for example, Chinese um, students, and which means that they are um, they are at the at the mercy of you know, of, of global politics because mm -hmm. if global politics changes, they could lose uh, an awful lot of money and, and so could the UK economy. I can predict with a great deal of certainty that that is a topic we will be returning to on this <laughs> podcast. 
Anand, Rishi Sunak used his speech at Conservative Conference to talk up Brexit. What did you make of what he said and, and what do you think the challenge now is for Keir Starmer? It's a really interesting question, I think, because actually, to a significant extent, uh, apart from a couple of fringes, Brexit hadn't been talked about. It certainly hadn't been talked about much, I don't think, on the main stage. But I think what Sunak was doing was two things there. He was obviously in front of a friendly audience and his claim that our economy was growing faster than that of France or Germany because of Brexit, not despite it. Got him a big throaty cheer. So, you know, this is still a Brexity audience. And in more strategic terms, my sense is that the leadership are still hopeful that Brexit is something that can be weaponized against Keir Starmer, as again was very, very clear from that speech. Uh, one of their attack lines is you can't trust Keir Starmer with Brexit, and they're going to tie that to what they say is his flip-flopping. Incidentally, some very nice uh, flip-flops with Keir Starmer's face on it on sale at the Conservative Party stall in Manchester. So they're preparing for the possibility of using Brexit as an attack line in the general election, as well as getting that cheer in the hall. Alan, just to, to wind us up for today, um, we've talked a bit, Paul's just talked about what we expect about Labour's future foreign policy that we don't know that much. We're not totally sure what their approach will be uh, if they get into government to the EU. But I get, just to turn the question around, what's, whoever's in government, whatever their aspirations might be in relation to the EU, what's the EU um, thinking about the UK right now? Well, I think the simple answer is they're not. Uh, certainly nowhere near as much as we seem to think they are. They've moved on. They've got other issues, whether it's migration or the upcoming budget negotiations or the new European Commission and the elections coming next year. Britain doesn't figure that much in conversations inside the European Union at the moment. And one of the things that's striking about what Labour is saying, we'll negotiate this, we'll negotiate that, we'll do a bit of that. I mean, there's two things actually worth saying. The first is, it's not at all obvious that the European Union wants to negotiate or give us those things. And secondly, it's worth bearing in mind that whether we have a veterinary agreement or this or that, it actually won't make much difference the overall macroeconomics of Brexit. Those impacts come from being outside the single market and the customs union. So they are tinkering around the edges, even if the European Union, which is far from certain, agrees to negotiate on the things that they've identified. I hope you enjoyed this episode of The Expert Factor. Remember, you can find us at Acast, iTunes, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. Do subscribe and do please leave us a review. We'd like to know that you haven't had anywhere near enough of experts. We'll be back next week with episode three. Until then, it's goodbye from me, Anand and Paul. See you for the next instalment of The Expert Factor. <laughs>